0: Halfway up View Road, I turned to look back the way I had come. View Road was a gravel road, a dead end. Below me was a crosshatching of fields and roads, and a sewage pond, and you could see the airport in my hometown, Te Kuiti. The airport wasn't really an airport at all, but a strip of mown grass with poplar trees at each end, and a tumble-down house, the clubhouse, where the pilots, including my father, gathered. It was really just another field. "'the plains like large animals. "'As I stood looking, catching my breath, "'a young man appeared around the corner, about a hundred metres away. "'I felt a small leap in my chest. "'He'd been following me, I thought, looking for me. "'He'd had a hunch I would be out walking alone, as I often was, "'and now here he was. "'I heard the crunch of his boots on the gravel as he approached. "'Perhaps I should have turned and walked away, avoiding his eye.' but I stayed very still. The man was wearing a grey t-shirt, the collarless sort with a few buttons below the neck, straight-legged blue jeans. He was also wearing sandals, which was a bit unusual. As he got closer he raised his eyebrows and made a slight pout, and I swear his head wobbled a bit from side to side. He reached for my hand. Yes, it was Paul McCartney. Specifically, it was Paul McCartney as he appeared in his picture in the sleeve notes of the White Album, unshaven, almost disheveled-looking. His fringe was just riffling his eyebrows. His eyes were a sad liquid. Together, we began to walk, hand in hand. I noted that Paul McCartney's fingers were slightly calloused. Of course, he had just finished playing the bass on the greatest album of all time. We walked slowly to the top of View Road... Then we looked out at the hills, trees, roads, cows, the interlocking parts of nowhere. We talked about books, music, writing, our families. I had a lot to say to Paul, but much of it wasn't ready to form words, so it filled my chest like a balloon. Still, Paul looked at me sideways, nodding in agreement as I didn't talk. It was 1997. 1997. The Beatles had split nearly 30 years before. In this reality, Paul McCartney's face was beginning its slow collapse. Anyone coming the other way on View Road, not that there was ever anyone, would have seen a grim-faced girl with her hand flapping out at one side as she walked. As my favourite bands changed, Paul became mutable. He would start out as Paul, and on the way home become George, A few times he was Tom Petty, wearing a black hat. Then Billy Corgan, scowling attractively before he lost his hair. For a good long while he was Tom York, his lazy eye fluttering in the harsh light. And soon he was Beck, too, loping along in sneakers and acid-washed jeans, occasionally shrieking with laughter like he did on Mellow Gold. It was enough to imagine a warm, intelligent presence – But this presence was always a musician from a stage or studio in a big city, from somewhere in the world. It was always someone who could make an ordinary place, an ordinary moment, more intense, more like a film, something driven towards meaningful conclusion. I'd told myself stories before, and sometimes written them down, before sending them off to the editor of the New Zealand School Journal, whose address I'd copied from the inside cover of a Part 3 journal at school, There was a hedgehog that went hang-gliding off the top of Mangarino Road. There was an intricate messaging system among the tiny crayfish in the streams in the bush above our house. Aliens had crash-landed their UFO in the bush, and now had a secret colony there. My stories received polite rejection letters from the editor of the school journal, which I showed to my parents with sorrow. But I was 14 now, and I wanted to be part of the story. I wanted to walk beside someone from a different universe, someone who would turn Te into something else. Its army blanket green would become a romantic backdrop, the same way the desert was a romantic backdrop in the English patient, instead of just lonely and hostile. At the same time, the landscape of Te created a delicious sadness in me. The hills, the row of pines above a clay bank, the Te sky a smothering grey... These surroundings confirmed and enhanced my loneliness, showed me that it was real. I didn't have many friends at high school. I didn't have a boyfriend. And although I wanted to be a writer, I wanted more to be in a band and become very famous. I had a limited sense of the ridiculous, but a strong sense of the melodramatic. And I gathered the landscape into my mood as if gathering up a luxurious fabric, pulling it round me and breathing it in. I believe that no one living in Taquiti had ever felt the same as I felt then. One day, I wrote a fan letter to Beck, whose album Odalay had just come out at the CD store on Aurora Street. Dear Beck, I have never written a fan letter before. This, of course, was a lie. I had written to many famous people, including Paul McCartney. But I wanted to write to say how much I love Odalay. I imagined Beck reading this letter. Slightly distracted at first, and then, drawn in by my words, marvelling that his music had travelled all the way to the bottom of the world, to a girl who lived in a town he would never have known existed, if not for my letter. A few weeks, perhaps a month later, I received a reply from Beck, or from someone pretending to be him. The letter said, Wow, what's it like living in New Zealand? Do y'all have the funky chicken there? Beck. I read the letter over and over, my hands shaking until it ceased to make sense. Although I had to admit the letter hadn't made much sense from the start. What was the funky chicken? Was it a dance, food, a fast food joint? What amazed me was not just that Beck had written back to me; it was that he had written the words "New Zealand." He had said the secret code word that granted us access to the rest of the world and he was interested to know what it was like here. It didn't seem an idle interest, but a genuine one. He was so interested that he'd said, "'Wow!' I wrote a long letter in reply. "'No, as far as I knew we didn't have the funky chicken. "'What was it, exactly?' "'I told him about my town, "'how its closest city was Hamilton, "'and that every year we had a celebration called Midnight Madness, "'when all the shops stayed open till midnight,' and there was a sheep-sharing competition at the Civic Centre. Te Kuiti men were so fast at shearing, I told Beg, that the town was known as the shearing capital of the world. I told him that the Mangakiwa River often flooded and made the riverbank muddy, so I couldn't walk my dog there. I also told him, in some detail, about walking up View Road and imagining him walking with me in his checked shirts and jeans and old sneakers, the same outfit he'd worn in that interview in Spin magazine. I didn't hear from Beck again, but the first letter made me feel that I was destined for great things. As I played the piano and howled into the living room, singing about the broken heart I hadn't yet experienced, I sometimes thought about being on stage with my brother, JP. It was JP who was becoming famous. He was doing a songwriting course in Hamilton, and he had a four-track recording machine. He'd had a song on student radio and he regularly played gigs with his band The Clampers, who had a small but a devoted following in Hamilton. To my father, this pursuit of music was baffling. Nobody made any money writing songs. Certainly nobody who came from a town of farmers, electricians and accountants like him. You've got to have money coming in, he told my brother. You can't not have money coming in. In secret, J.P. and I made fun of this belligerence, Gotta have money coming in. Gotta have money coming in. It became our chant. Despite this, I knew that Dad liked to hear JP play. He would cajole him into playing at his friend's milestone birthday parties. Sometimes JP would impersonate Dad. Please some eagles, JP. They'll love it. Play Hotel California. I feel like a performing monkey. When JP relented and got out his guitar, Dad looked as happy as I had ever seen him leaning on the bar, awkward with pride. We had all been proud, though in my case envious too, when J.P. had auditioned to play at Neil Finn and Friends in Hamilton and had been chosen to play alongside the man himself, Neil Finn, the great Neil Finn of Split Ends and Crowded House. There was a photo in the Waikato Times of the two of them standing on the stage, looking uncannily like brothers, blond hair, long arms, guitars held at the same angle, JP is mid-song, wide-eyed in the expensive-looking spotlight. He looks braced. Maybe he's hitting a high note. Neil Finn is holding out one hand towards him, as if presenting JP to the world. When JP came home to Te on occasional weekends or at term break, Dad sometimes cornered him in the kitchen. I was talking to a bloke at Omia," he might begin. Omya was the Limeworks across the railway line from the airport. It was a place of blinding white gravel and cooling towers and mini forklift trucks constantly in reverse. I thought we could set something up. He would look at JP with a funny expression, leaving the words on the brink, gotta have money coming in. We'd all stand there in the kitchen, dad in his office clothes, me in my high school uniform, mum in an apron with her glass of country cask wine, and JP in his cardigan and cord pants, plumes of blonde hair sticking up around his head. He had been writing songs all day and recording them in the bathroom, where the acoustics were better. All right, I'll have a think about it, he'd say, unhappily. Many of the worst jobs he'd ever had began this way.